As I mentioned, our series for the summer is based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. We're saying this is the foundation of Christian teaching, and this week is serving as an introduction to the gospel. It picks up right where Tyler left off a few minutes ago in the reading, and these verses sort of serve as a theme for all of Paul's letter. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Here he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is God's word. The most important event in the second millennium A.D., which is a pretty big statement, but the most important event in that thousand-year span uh, involved a German monk named Martin Luther. And I know that's a little cliche coming from a Lutheran pastor, but nonetheless, if you just take the the facts, uh, nobody has had more written about them in world history. Outside of Jesus Christ, nobody has had more than, there's some debate amongst historians. It's either Luther or St. Augustine. But uh, the fact that that much ink has been spilled on one guy, that event undeniably, objectively, is uh, like a central event, an impactful event in all of world history, particularly the second millennium. And what's interesting to me is that Luther himself would not point to the event that we think of as the starting of the Protestant Reformation, uh, the posting of the 95 Theses on the front door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. He would not look at that as the most pivotal event in his own life. Rather, what he would do is he would look at something that actually happened a couple years later, two years exactly, uh, 1519, what is referred to in Luther's works as his uh, tower experience. The tower experience is something where uh, he references it in Luther's works, he references it in some of his other collections of writings, and uh, it really is, some historians will say it's actually part of his conversion, which is interesting, but I want to read to you a portion from this tonight. Again, Luther says this is the pivotal moment in his whole life. Here he writes, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way except one expression. The expression is the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. Therefore, I did not love, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. Yet, I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And here's the key moment. He says, Then I grasped, That the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He goes on to say, The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, 
In other words, what he's saying is he thought the righteousness of God in the Bible meant righteousness that I myself have to produce to make myself at peace with God. What I came to learn righteousness actually was is something that God gifts to me to make me right with him and give me peace with him. And when I realized that, when I realized that, now the righteousness of God became to me an inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now, that's a lot, I know. Here's what this means. You follow that? Luther was baptized as a little child. He was raised in a Christian family. He went to Christian schools. He became a monk. He taught at the seminary. And you know what he said his disposition was? He was anxious, he was angry, and he hated God. Why? Because he didn't believe he was capable. He rightly believed he was incapable of producing something that could make himself at peace with God. And he didn't ever let that go. He didn't gain any peace until he started to understand when he was meditating on Romans 1.17 that the righteousness of God is not something God is asking him to do. It's something God is trying to give to him if he would simply believe. And that is the single deepest, most important thought in all of human history. We're going to spend the summer sort of unpacking that. Uh, here's, I, I reduced it down from three points to one point. One point, it's got four subpoints, so don't get fooled. But it's, we're just going to look at the shame of the gospel, uh, the fact that the gospel is exclusive, it's not easy, it's gifted, and it's costly. And what I mean by that is it's exclusive. It's not just wide open. There's parameters. It's not easy. It's hard. It's gifted. It's not earned. And it's costly. It didn't come cheap. Okay? So the first two points I'll just glance over real briefly, and the other two we'll spend most of our time on. But first of all, it's uh, exclusive. And by the way, even that expression, talking about the shame of the gospel, a lot of people can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, if you don't know what the gospel means. Of course you're not ashamed by something if you don't fully understand it. Luther is saying, Paul is saying, that when you understand what the gospel actually is, it's inherently offensive to the natural flesh. If you've never been offended by the gospel, you maybe haven't fully understood the gospel yet. And I, this isn't a comprehensive list, but I'm going to give you four reasons why the natural, not natural flesh is hostile to and offended by and shamed by the gospel. First one, uh, it's exclusive. Now, you, you maybe say, I thought Christianity was inclusive. Well, it is. But it's also exclusive. It's inclusive in that Paul writes, it's good for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's good for the Greeks and the non-Greeks. But he also says, you can't come to God simply by any path of your own choosing. You can't come to God by any other name than Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a narrow path. It offends us. The idea, the fact that somebody who is relatively a decent person, a good person, relatively speaking, a nice and generous person, cannot access God, cannot access salvation apart from Jesus Christ. That totally offends not just modern people, that offends a lot of people due to its exclusivity. Not only uh, is the exclusiveness potentially offensive, also uh, the fact that it's not easy. We, we recognize and want that the gospel is something where Jesus comes and he conquers and destroys all our enemies. And yet the gospel actually more than conquering and destroying is not just Jesus taking up power but giving up power. It's him laying down his life and suffering and serving. And, and furthermore, when he says, if you're going to follow after me, 
Guess what you have to do? You've got to pick up your cross, which means that our lives as Christians are not primarily about victory and success, but they too are also primarily about humility and sometimes suffering and always serving, and that's offensive. We want it to be easy. We want the gospel, we want our lives, we want the earning of eternal life. We want it to be easy for Christ and easy for us, and uh, we want it to mean immediate worldly safety and comfort, and the gospel just doesn't mean that. Uh, it gives us that eternally, but the gospel is not your best life now. It's not. It's your best life for all eternity. It's your best life gifted to you by Christ, and it means laying down your own life right now. And that absolutely is offensive to the natural human flesh. And therefore, if you're just summarizing these first two points, what I'd say is the gospel is offensive because uh, little old Jesus, a poor Jewish carpenter, like the gospel is, he's the central figure and the central figure in the New Testament who's promoting the gospel seems to be a, a Jewish tent maker. And there aren't many pathways by which to receive the blessings of the gospel, but there's one pathway. It's, it's exclusive and narrow in some respects. And furthermore, when you believe the gospel and receive salvation that way, it doesn't mean necessarily in this life triumph and success and conquering, but it, it means humility and serving and laying down your own life and potentially even some suffering. There's, that, that message has no business winning over Rome and the most powerful nation in world history. And yet somehow, within the matter of a couple of generations, it does. Because it's otherworldly in its beauty and truth. Now we're going to spend more, more of our time on these next two points. Not only is the gospel offensive because it's exclusive and it's not easy, but the gospel is also offensive to us because it has to be gifted. Salvation has to be gifted. Um, I've touched on this before, but this is, it, it's worth revisiting. I have to constantly remind, before I teach any sermon or any class, I have to remind myself the gospel is good news, it's not good advice. And even the word, what gospel actually means in Greek, it's oiangelion, which is where we get our word evangelical from, which carries a lot of its own kind of baggage. But uh, oiangelion, it's basically two Greek words put together. Oi, which means good or well, and angelion or angelos, which means it's where we get our word angel from, which means messenger or message. So oiangelion is good message or good news. Now, to drill that down even further, I want you to understand that that word existed before Christianity existed. The, the word, you know, it's, it's in oh, the old English, it's then comes forth as good news or gospel. But that word existed, oiangelion existed before Christianity did. In fact, here's a couple quick references to it. The historian Diodorus Siculus actually says in the first century BC, it's an announcement of victory in war. He says, now Dionysius had produced a tragedy of the Lenaei at Athens and won the victory. And one of those who sang in the chorus, supposing that, the, that he would be re rewarded handsomely if he were the first to give news of the victory, set sail to Corinth. There, finding a ship bound for Sicily, he transferred to it and obtaining favoring winds, speedily landed at Syracuse and gave the tyrant news of the victory. Dionysius did reward him and was himself so overjoyed that he sacrificed to the gods for the good tidings and instituted a drinking bout and great feasts. The word that he uses here, oiangelia in Greek. You see, that letter was not anything about good advice. It was representing good news of a victory that had already taken place that brought forth lasting implications. That's good news. 
the most famous use of it, extant of the Bible, is in Cicero's letters to Atticus. He writes, is that so? Does Brutus really say that Caesar is going over to the right party? That is good news. That doesn't sound at all like advice, does it? He's not telling anybody to do anything. He's saying something happened and it has a positive impact on us. Now, why is that important? When the Apostle Paul says that the message of salvation is good news, not good advice, he's saying that salvation comes through the gift of Jesus Christ. That's unique because no other world religion is like that at all. You look at other world religions have morality. Oh, of course they have morality. People talk about living like a Christian and stuff like that. Yeah, there's, there's morality in Christianity. Christianity is not defined by morality. It's not def- Other religions have origin stories. Other religions have rules. Other religions have lifestyle advice. Yes, Christianity has that, but it's not defined by that. Other religions are defined by that. Eightfold path, five pillars, four goals, ten commandments. That is the essence the, the foundation of other religions. That's good advice about how to live your life. Christianity at its core is not good advice. It's good news. Now, you say, well, why is that offensive? Well, it's offensive because if Christianity is good news, not good advice, then you don't accomplish it. You actually play very little role at all in it. It's not something that you can take credit for. And in fact, the, the fact that it's already done for you before you're even born means you don't really have the opportunity to do it. God must have deemed you incapable of accomplishing it on your own. It must be therefore received then as a gift. Now sometimes receiving gifts, especially good gifts, is actually kind of offensive. Um, some of you know this. We've talked about this before too. If, if um, I'm in a public setting and my wife leans over and offers me a Tic Tac, of course I'm going to take a Tic Tac. Uh, like, why would I turn down a Tic Tac if somebody offers you a Tic Tac? You take a Tic Tac because what are they insinuating not so subtly? Your breath stinks. Okay? And you are not capable. There's this weird thing about how we can't smell our own bad breath, but other people, it's, you're not really offended by your own breath. You might notice it's not great, but uh, you're not as offended by your own bad breath as you are by other people's bad breath. If somebody gives you the Tic Tac, you take it because it insinuates you can't accomplish something on your own to get rid of your own stink. Uh, if you are going to receive the gospel as a gift, not advice that you do, but a gift, news that you receive, It requires you to acknowledge something about yourself, a deficit that you are currently lacking. It requires you to acknowledge that there's something in your life currently stinks and you can't do anything to rectify it on your own. And so therefore, somebody has to come in from the outside and offer you something that can make your life fresh and new. It can only be received by way of a gift. And if the gospel is is not good advice and it's good news... It's not something you do, it's something that's done for you. What that also then means uh, is not only can you not take credit for it, uh, but that means, look, if your whole life is wrapped up in your redemption, if the gospel is the thing that saves you and makes you you and makes you safe for all eternity, then not only is the gospel not about me, it's primarily about God. My life isn't about me, it's primarily about God. I mean, just listen to the way people talk sometimes. When you talk about my hopes and my dreams and my plans for my life, and my, I'm not even sure a Christian should ever use the term my life. Because all of it is completely owned by Jesus Christ. And that is super humbling. And it is totally and utterly offensive to the natural flesh. 
Which brings me to the final point, which is just kind of an extension of that. Uh, you know, we said it's not only, it's, it's, the gospel is offensive to us because it's exclusive, not just inclusive. It's not easy. It was hard. Uh, and it could mean some hardness. It was gifted. It can't be earned by us. But finally, it's not just that it's a gift. It's the depth, the costliness of the gift is terribly humbling and terribly offensive to the flesh. Um, when the Apostle Paul, very closely related to this concept of, of the gospel, is the concept of justification. Justification is one of those churchy words that we use, but it means to declare something not guilty. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in order to declare us not guilty of our sins, it's not so much that Jesus created a change in us, but that something happened outside of us that changed God's perception of us. Also very different from a religious standpoint and very essential to understanding the gospel. The gospel is not primarily about changes that are cleaned up in your life. It's about something that happened outside of you that changed God's perspective of you. Just think about what the word justify means for a second. If, if I ask you to give me your opinion on like a hot controversial political topic and you give your opinion and I say, whoa, justify yourself, what am I asking you to do? I'm not asking you to change your opinion. I'm not asking you to change your stance. I'm asking you to change my perception of your stance. If I say justify yourself, I'm saying I'm having a hard time understanding and accepting your particular position or stance on that issue. Give me some evidence. Give me some data that will change my perspective so that I can see where you're coming from. Justify yourself. So what does that mean? The gospel tells us it's not so much something that happens inside of us that changes our future, but something that happens outside of us that changes God's opinion of us. The son did something that changed the father's opinion of us so that now we look different and our relationship with the father is different. Instead of wrath and justice over our sins, God now looks at us and he loves us and he accepts us and he delights in us, what changed? What did the son do? It's, it's, it's two things, but it's in one act. And here's the kicker. 90% of Christians, I don't think, can give me the answer that I think is the full answer. 90% of Christians, I think, will tell me if I said, what did the son do that changed the father's opinion of you? 90% of Christians, I think, can give me the first part of the gospel, which is what? Jesus died on the cross and he forgave me of my sins. And yes, that is absolutely true and absolutely right and absolutely amazing and it's absolutely not enough. How do I know? Just look at Luther. He knew that. He said he was wasting away as a nearly impeccable monk and he had no joy in his life and he hated God even though he already knew that God through Jesus Christ had forgiven him of all of his sins. Still, he hated himself and he hated his life and he resented God until he understood what? The righteousness of, of the gospel. See, he, he already understood the forgiveness of the gospel. The thing that he didn't understand was the righteousness of the gospel that had been gifted to him through Jesus Christ. What's the gift of righteousness? This is the thing that I think is probably missing in the knowledge of most of Christians regarding the, the gospel. Let me explain it like this. In the mid-90s, there was a lot, some of you are too young, but uh, most of you have probably seen it. In the mid-90s, there was a great movie, one of the best movies of all time, called The Shawshank Redemption. 
and Morgan Freeman played a life, uh, almost lifelong incarcerated individual uh, prisoner named Red, went by the name of Red. And, uh, you know, he's up for parole numerous times, and he gets denied, and he gets denied, and he gets denied. But finally, near the end of his life, he barely even cares about it anymore. He just assumes he's going to die in there. And, uh, but he's up for parole once again, and sure enough, he gets paroled. And yet, if you remember, he's absolutely terrified by the thought of it. Why? See, he had had an older friend who has also uh, spent his life in prison by the name of Brooks. And Brooks had gotten out before him, and he had been pardoned of his crimes, and he had been set free, but you know what he ended up doing? Remember? Brooks hung himself. Why did Brooks hang himself? He got set free from prison. He got pardoned of his transgressions. Um, he'd been pardoned of his crimes. He'd been set free from prison, but he wasn't really free. It's not enough to just get pardoned of your crimes. See, now he had to live life. He had been serving a life sentence. Now he actually had to go about living life and he had to make something of himself. And that pressure to a released prisoner was overwhelmed. He was pardoned, but now he had to make himself all right and he knew he wasn't up to the task. And I think that's the pressure that cripples most Christians too. If you only understand that, for, that the gospel is the forgiveness of your sins, that is like I'm redeemed to a second opportunity and I'm probably going to screw that one up too. Now i got to make something of myself. Every single person, by the way, on planet Earth, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you are overwhelmed with guilt and looking for forgiveness or not, every single person on planet Earth senses that deep down inside there is this tremendous feeling of inadequacy and I'm not inherently good enough and I need to get right and they are thirsting for righteousness. We talked about this, if you were here last week, we talked about this a little bit with idolatry. What idols really are is they are attempts to make myself valuable and make myself right with God, with the world, with myself. Sometimes it's through other good things like my career or my personal attractiveness or my beautiful family or my moral performance. Remember what Luther said? He said these, attempts, these are attempts to quiet the inner murmur that things aren't right and that I'm not good enough. You know what the gospel does? It releases you of that pressure because it's not only that Jesus has taken care of all of my sins and forgiven me for all of my sins. Oh, yes, it's absolutely that. But it's also that you are made right through a gift of righteousness that you can't screw up, that nobody can take from you, and that there is no pressure upon you to perform. Um, the best thing that you will ever be, the best thing that you can ever be, the best thing that any human being would ever possibly be is a child of God. And that is completely gifted to you through the righteousness of Christ to all who believe. Now, again, why is that offensive? It's offensive because it required the murder of God's son in order to reconcile you to God. You were not cheap. It costs an insane amount to reconcile us to God and nothing could possibly cost more than the life of God's son. But God's love was greater than the cost. And now through God's cross-shaped, blood-tinged, gospel-lensed vision, you're absolutely worth it to him and you're eternally his. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we approach your table this evening, 
assure us not only that our sins have been paid for. Some of us have known that our whole lives and we're incredibly grateful for it. But we also need additional assurance that no matter what our feelings tell us, no matter what our thoughts tell us, no matter what this world tells us, we are okay. We're right. We're enough because you have gifted us your righteousness. And let that make us joyful and let us live out of that kind of joy. In your name we pray. Amen.